Hello and welcome back to the Financial Success Show. We have this uh, live broadcast on Facebook Live every Thursday afternoon at 3-ish p.m. I am your host, Jeffrey Eady, the president of Blackthorn Group. Joining me as always is my lovely assistant, Mr. Kirk Forsyth. Kirk, how are you doing today? Hey, not too bad, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, without uh, any further ado, let's uh, introduce our the special guest hour. today. A uh, good friend of mine, Mr. Jonathan Tilger, who is a mortgage broker with over a decade of experience, been featured on numerous television shows, such as uh, a Top Million Dollar Agent. Uh, Jonathan, are you with us? I am here. Good afternoon, guys. How are you? Excellent, sir. How are you? Oh, doing amazing today. Good, good. So um, we usually let uh, young Kirk ask some questions here and, and kind of get us kick-started, but I'm going to buck the format as I usually do and upset him. You always like to go off script, don't you, Jeff? <laughs> always. Can't win with you. Uh, just, uh, Jonathan, can I ask you real quick just a couple questions? Like, uh, how did you get involved in the mortgage industry? Um, I like to say that I lost a bet. <laughs> who was the bet with no no in, 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 all, in all seriousness though it was uh, really just at a point in my life looking looking for a change and looked at a few different things I actually started a few different things along with mortgages at the same time and it just kind of like as the business it, it, it was just momentum happened in the business at the time and as a result run with the momentum that, that's, uh, that's really there and things just exploded hmm so kind of those, uh, one of those, those moments where fate stepped in and, and sidetracked you and it turned out to be a really good thing? It's, uh, well, that, that's part of it. I mean, part of it was really a conscious decision. Look, looking, it's like when you look for opportunities, opportunities present themselves. And was definitely the situation where I was looking for opportunities. Uh, when I did get into the business, it was, with, uh, it was with a partner I was involved in a relationship with. And uh, we were both actually just at a point where we were looking, looking for, as I said, looking for an opportunity and things just kind of kept lining up with mortgages. So I said, okay, well, something's talking to me here. Let's, let's go with mortgages. So you, uh, you've got about a decade of experience. Is that correct? Uh, a little bit over a decade now, actually. So you came in uh, right about the time when things got interesting, I guess. Yeah, uh, it was. Um, I, I will just say that when I got into the business, so many people around me said, you're crazy to get into this right now. Uh, with what's going on in the financial markets, this is probably the worst thing you can possibly do. Uh, and as so often presents itself or shows itself in life, it's when things seem like they're at their bleakest, that's when there is the most opportunities. I think the Wizard of Oz taught us that, wasn't it? Uh, it's going to get darker before it gets lighter? Yeah. Follow the yeah. Elric Road? Yeah. <laughs> Great you know, to have that song stuck in my head. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's actually really interesting that you say that. Um, one of the things I always talk to people about is there is no no bad time to start a business. There's, there's bad things to do at bad times. But uh, starting your own business, I mean, 16 of the Dow 30 companies were started during a recession or a depression. Um, I mean, good for you for, for not listening to everybody else. How did you, you manage the... The mental part of that, not listening to all the people around you. It really, part of it, I'd say, it, it almost drives you even more. When someone's saying, well, it's a bad time to do it, it's that, it's that competitive side that says, no, it's not a bad time, and I'm going I'm to show you it's not a bad time. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's very cool. Good for you. So let's, uh, let's let the youngster here ask some questions, because he's kind of a, uh, a mortgage newbie when it comes to all this stuff. I am. Stuff, I'm working so. on uh, getting my license, so... Who knows? Maybe I'll be in there. But Jonathan, are there any benefits to going with a private brokerage over a big time bank? 
Uh, well, I'll, I'll just I'll just correct you when you say about private brokerages because because brokerages in themselves are not private. They're just they are they are yeah like a smaller brokerage compared to a bigger one. Yeah, but but going going with going to a broker as opposed to going to a bank, the uh, the advantage there. Really, you go to a bank. You're talking to one person about one line of products. You go to a broker, a broker, and the big thing is you can just get educated on a variety of products and a variety of lenders that are out there. I mean, I do represent a number of the banks. In addition to, okay. you've got a lot of non-bank lenders, and you think, well, you go to a non-bank lender, the rates are going to be higher. In a lot of cases, there are a lot of non-bank lenders who are still classified as what they call as A lenders. So they're still looking for your AAA clients, excellent credit, good income, everything else. So their rates are as competitive or sometimes more competitive, but often better terms than the banks are offering. So let me play devil's advocate here and step in. Um, Jonathan, I'm sure you've seen it. The mortgage industry can be rife with bad agents, uh, especially you know back in uh, late 80s, early 90s, mortgage agents and mortgage brokers got a really bad name. How are you uh, combating that these days? Well, the, the, big, the big thing is, there's, I mean, in any industry you go to, there's always going to be bad people out there. But the big thing, if you are looking for, if you are looking to get a mortgage and you're going to, whether it's a broker, and, and I say there's bad agents, there's bad people at the bank who can give bad advice as well. So this is an exclusive. Amen. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, but it's really important to take a little bit of time and make sure that the person you're dealing with, you're comfortable with them. It's great having them obviously refer to somebody who you know who, who's done business with them so you know that they're really going to look out for your interests as opposed to putting their interests ahead of yours. Yeah, amen to that. Yeah, so I mean, basically, it's just like finding a person you trust, whether it be in car sales, selling real estate, selling mortgages, selling mutual funds. As long as you trust somebody, you're good to go. Tr tr trust funds? is so important. That, <laughs> I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with business, getting a mortgage, life, I mean – Friendship. I mean, do you want to be friends with someone you don't trust? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jeff. I'm not your friend anymore. <laughs> it's all right. I don't trust you. <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, minimum, you're going to be looking at at least a, a three-year term where that person is going to be your friend. Uh, but if they're really good, I guess 25, 30 years is the relationship you're, you're creating with them. Is that right? Uh and that's one of the things that, as you say, differentiates the good agents from the bad agents. The, the, uh, the, there, are a, there are agents who, and I, I'll, I'll just drop the words good and bad, but there are agents who are what I like to call transactional. Mm. A transactional agent, their mindset is, let me get as much as I can from this person today because I probably won't see them tomorrow. <laughs> as opposed to the agent who's really looking to say, hey, this is a relationship and, and I really want this to be a lifetime relationship. I want this person, when they buy their next house, when they look to refinance, when whatever their next life stage is, I want them to think of me first when they're thinking about mortgages. Because also it makes me referable because it, because who do you think they're gonna to talk to when their brother, their friend comes up and says, hey, listen, I'm looking to buy a house. Who do you have that you'd recommend? I want me to be that, that person that's top of mind because I've done such a good job for them. What, uh, what do you do to ensure that? Really, the, the top thing is put the, put the person's interest first. And it's part of that is educating them, helping them know what they're getting into. But there can be over-educating as well, because I'd say for, for, the, for the average person, the average consumer, they don't care about most of what's happening. What, what they really care about is, number one, 
I mean, rate is obviously part of it. But with that, what's their what's their what's their payments going to be on their mortgage? What are their what are their prepayment options on the mortgage? Who's the lender they're actually dealing with, and what do they do should they have to contact the lender or need assistance with that? But the big part is, should their circumstances change, they need to get out of that mortgage. Do they understand fully what's going to be involved and the big part of what's going to be involved? What are their costs in doing that? Mm -hmm. So you would say conditions matter as much or more than rate? Oh, I, I would say more than rate. And the, bi the big reason why I, I like to say, I, I like to joke and say people fight over, let's just call it 0.1% on a mortgage. If you've got a $300,000 mortgage, 0.1% is $300 a year. And yet yeah. they just sign away their, they just don't even look at what it's going to cost them to break their mortgage. But I've seen people fight for that 0.1%, but when it comes to the terms that it's going to cost them to break that mortgage, they end up having to pay two or 3% higher than they would have with another option. So, so they fight to save $300 a year, but if they're looking at two to 3% on that same, that same mortgage, they're looking to six to $9,000 more that they'd have to pay in a penalty to get out of it. Oh. So penny wise, pound foolish. Exactly the case. Yeah. <laughs> Could you dive into the B20 rule a little bit for us, Jonathan, as well? Oh. <laughs> you knew that one was coming. <laughs> Set him up perfectly for it. And, and part of that, the, the, big, the big thing is like terms, you hear people on the street going, the stress test, what's the stress test going to do to me? To the average person. <laughs> stress him out? <laughs> to the average person, what does that mean? And what does it translate to? Saying, well, there's a stress test. Well, if you're getting mortgage, it doesn't affect you. Well, it does affect you, but it doesn't affect you directly. It affects how the lenders, what the lenders have to do on the back end to securitize the money. But as far as what what that's gonna do to you and how it's affect you, the number one thing that, that the B20, and there's been a couple of regulation changes since then, the number one thing that it has done to the consumer is it has reduced what you can actually, the or just the amount of mortgage you can qualify for. I shouldn't say what you can afford, but mm. the amount you can qualify for because it effectively has just changed the rate it qualifies. You can no longer qualify at your contract rate. If you're getting a rate of, let's say, three and a quarter percent, you don't qualify that. You gotta qualify at a rate of five and five and a quarter percent. So what it does, what's the end result? It means that it's gonna it's gonna reduce what someone can qualify for by about twenty-five to thirty percent. Oh, that's nice and simplified. I appreciate yeah. that. That makes me be able to understand it. <laughs> yeah. What steps could someone take to increase their chances on getting a mortgage? Well, the I'll just go through what the lenders really look at when it comes to getting a mortgage. Uh, credit is essential. Uh, number two is income. And then the other things are really looking at the property and so forth. So th those are the top three things that are really considered with the mortgage. So as far as to increase your chances or just to make it more probable for yourself to get the mortgage you're looking for, number one is keep your credit in good standing. And that's, that's usually, it, it's fairly simple with that. Pay your bills on time and whenever possible, pay down debts. The, so what kind of a credit score would I have to have to qualify for a really good mortgage? That's one of the, the things that, that has changed a little bit. It used to be about 650 and above. It really is seven, 700, 720 plus to get the best terms. If you've still got the 650 to 680, there still are options, but the rates may be a little bit higher. And then there might be a few less options out there for you. Uh, once you get below, uh, below those scores, once you get below 650, um, 
then you may start having to look at alternative lenders where the rates start increasing. And where would you start to look for our alternative lenders? That, that's where your best bet is to go to a broker because brokers usually have access to both A, B, private, and, and other sources of funds. So I've got a, a question just a little bit off on that. When you're talking about broker versus bank, um, one of the things that I was, I wouldn't say warned about, but certainly cautioned <laughs> about is the collateral mortgage. And uh, there's a couple of banks who exclusively use that. Can you explain the collateral mortgage a little bit and why somebody might want to be aware of that before they sign into it? Okay, the, the number one thing I'm going to say about, about there, there's, there's two ways to register a mortgage, what they term as collateral or a standard charge. And, and the first thing I'm gonna say about collateral, a collateral mortgage or a collateral charge mortgage is not a bad thing. And where collateral actually comes about is if you're getting a mortgage that includes a line of credit or a line of credit portion, that needs to be registered as a collateral mortgage. The big difference with collateral versus a standard charge, I'm gonna, I'll stick with that $300,000 mortgage. So if you're getting a $300,000 mortgage and it's a standard charge mortgage, as you pay that mortgage down to 250000 what's registered on your property will then drop to 250000 So the balance of the equity is under your control. With the collateral mortgage, when they register it, because as I said, it was originally, originally designed with a line of credit. So if you had a secured line of credit on your property, even if the balance owing is only 250000 but you've got the ability to borrow that extra 50000 and bring it up to 300000 they need to leave that charge at 300000 because that's the amount that is available. Now, so, so would now some of sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to ask, would that would that kind of keep you with that lender if you've got that extra charge against the property? Would you have to, to pay that off before you could leave them? Well, if if you're going to leave them, it's always got to be paid off, regardless of whether it's collateral or or standard charge. If you owe two hundred fifty thousand, that's all you have to pay off to have it discharged, even if it's registered for three hundred thousand. Okay. So it's, it's not you've got to pay back three hundred thousand. You have to pay back what you owe. Okay. So yeah, I've I've heard it as as a, a tool for kind of keeping you with that certain lender. So I guess that's more of a myth. Now that yeah, I'll, I'll go I'll go through because there's a couple more things I want to say about the collateral charge mortgage. Uh, number one is that it's not transferable, which means that when you when your mortgage term comes due for renewal. You can just transfer it to another lender. There usually is no legal charges to do it. So if you if you do have a collateral charge mortgage and when you come due, if you, you, you won't have a penalty at that point, but if you want to transfer it, the one extra cost that will come in, you will have to go back through a lawyer. So you're gonna need a legal charge to get that done. Mm. The other thing to be aware of, if it is being registered as a collateral charge, as a collateral is not a bad thing, but the actual amount of the charge, they can, where some of the lenders get you, is you're borrowing 300,000, they'll actually have in your contract that, well, we can register it for up to 125% of the house value. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a $300,000 mortgage on a $500,000 place, but it's 125% of the value. So I'm doing the math quickly in my head here. Uh, I could be off by a little bit, so, but so, so they're, <laughs> they're basically registering the mortgage for $625,000, even though you're only getting $300,000 out. So where that really comes in and where I've seen it hurt a few people, that part right there, is at a later date, you now don't qualify, but you need to access money in your property. Well, who controls that equity? That lender. So you cannot, mm. even, even, if, even if you owe 300000 on that $500,000 place, 
and you got a private lender willing to lend it, they're saying, well, the charge is ready for 600000 so you, so I, basically, I can't secure the equity, so I can't lend you any money. I actually saw somebody with a with about a million and a half dollar house, they owe 300000 and they needed to access money so they to to infuse their business. They had to go private based on the circumstances, and they couldn't get it because of how the re- the collateral charge was registered. Wow, what do you do in that case? Um, well, their their choice was they now have to completely discharge the first mortgage. They'll only qualify for private based on the circumstances. So the rate they had in the first mortgage is gone. They're having to get something that's about three times higher for a rate for a total mortgage. That sounds that's like a brutal. pretty raw deal. Yeah, so, yeah. so that, that's that's where the collateral really is important. If you, as I said, collateral is not a bad thing. There are some lenders who do it with any mortgage, whether there's a, a line of credit or not. But if you are getting that, just make sure you understand it. Make sure you understand what's being registered. And and if you're not sure, again, do your homework. Talk to somebody who who knows or is in the business who can really explain it to you. And the person can explain it. And I'll go back to the to the scenario what you said about bank. Uh, one of the things with banks is you walk into a bank and the average teller has no clue about mortgages. You're at the yeah. new mortgage advice, but they couldn't tell you anything about it. You know, that's that's one of the things that drives me nuts uh, about the the lending industry is if you look at a, a mortgage agent, they're bound by laws uh, here in Ontario, fiscal rules that that say you must do what's in the best interest of your client. But the employees at the bank or the salespeople at the bank um, are bound by the Banking Act to do what's best for the bank. I love how you say salespeople. Well, that's, that's what they are. They're, they're tellers. They're cashiers. Yeah. Um, nothing against them. It's a good job. But they're, they're not there to serve the interests of the customer. They're there to serve the interests of the bank. Yep. Well, I got another question for you, Jonathan, here. I was reading this thing called Payment Assistance programs for uh, down payments on a house is there such a thing and if there is how would you qualify for them uh, you're referring to what some of the government programs that payment assistance yes often those are municipally run so by municipally run I mean different municipalities might have different different incentives out there uh, I, I, I've not dealt a lot with them, so I'm not going to go telling you all this information about them. I know that, that it tends to be by municipality that those are operated. And generally speaking, if they do have them, they've got clauses in them where you actually have to stay in the house for a certain period of time. Oh, interesting. Mm. So it's not a matter of, hey, you get this money for a down payment. I mean, obviously, various levels of government are out there to assist people, help them get into homes, and, and those are great programs. But with that, uh, but with that, just again, if you're looking at one of those programs, I know that, that they do have cert, certain certain things, and if you sell the house within a certain period of time, you got to pay it all back and everything else. Uh, so, so those, those are just things to be aware of. And just if you are looking at those programs, if you do have a municipality that has one of those, just uh, understand what those programs are, what the downsides are, and and again, if you're going to break it, and now you don't go complaining that they charge you a penalty for that. If, if you basically broke the contract. So here's, uh, and uh, you know, kind of in the same lines, uh, the principal residence uh, 5% down rule uh, versus investor 20% down rule. Um, I know you've shared with me uh, a good strategy around that. Do you mind elaborating on that a little bit uh, on on how to get a second property with the 5% down? 
So th th this is one of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of, is that as long as it's your residence, it doesn't have to be the first property you buy. A lot of people assume it's the first property you buy and the first property you buy only. Uh, but if in fact you are buying you are buying another property and you're going to be moving into that other property as your principal residence and you currently own a house so let, let's let's just say you've got you've got um let's start with a single person they bought a condo uh the single person meets somebody gets involved in a relationship they decide hey this condo is too small for us to live in let, let's get a house or a townhouse so they go they find a place uh, so they've got a couple options. Number one is they can sell that that property, the initial property they had, take out take out the equity, use that to buy their new property, or they can either uh, they can look to refinance, pull the equity out, do the same thing. But they can also with that new property, they don't have to have twenty percent down, though it is a call it new property they're buying, and it is not that they're not first time home buyers at that point. They can still buy with as little as five percent down in that situation, welcoming the other property and renting it out. So really, it's just a shift in mindset that the the property that you're in can become your rental property, and the one that you're moving to becomes your principal rental. Yeah, and, and it's a great way. It's actually how I got into having investment properties for the first time as well. As I had a small place that I lived in initially, um, again was in a relationship, needed more space. And we decided jointly, obviously, it made sense to keep this property. So owned it for several years, had a great tenant in there. I was able to get uh, get uh, was able to get a fair bit of appreciation in the property. In addition to my my tenant over over a series of a few years, paid uh, paid down some of my mortgage. That's cool. That is really Love that cool. idea. We we definitely teach that here. It's uh, get somebody else to pay your mortgage, right? Exactly. But but it, it, that what you're talking about there. It's a great strategy when you're starting out. I've got I've got a small property. I want to get something else. I'd ideally like to get an investment property or get that going as well. It's a great way to start that that and start that portfolio out. You obviously can't do that indefinitely, but uh, but you can do it at the beginning. That's cool. Great tip. Thank that you. That is really cool. What are first time homebuyer credits? Can you elaborate on those? Uh, which which credit you're referencing? You're talking about the the tax credit. Yeah, the first-time yeah. homebuyer tax credit. So, so there are, so there are two things when it comes to first-time homebuyers. Two advantages that a first-time homebuyer has that somebody who's previously owned a property does not have. Uh, number one is the land transfer tax credit. And so, obviously, in the city of Toronto, they're they've got the double land transfer tax. So there's a portion of that coming back as well. So it, it's it's effectively that that you're a first. The first, the first amount of dollars on the land transfer tax. Don't quote me on the exact numbers because I, I, it's more the lawyers deal with this. Uh, but the first, the first, I think it's of like fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars on the land transfer tax. Uh, you can get back, and, and by get back, you don't even pay it at at the time of closing. It's applied as a credit, so you don't even pay it when you buy the property. The other one that comes in that's a very interesting one is the the RSPs. I know that uh, I know Jeff. RSPs are what they are. They're, 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 they're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeff, you got a little something on your shirt. That. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to react so violently. But but especially if someone does have money in their RSPs when they're buying a property, it's a great way. So first time home buyers, they can actually take that money out tax free, up to twenty five thousand dollars. But that's twenty five thousand per person. So if you've got a couple buying, 
they can actually pull out up to 25,000 each, so up to $50,000 from their RSPs tax-free. It does have to be repaid um, with, without the tax benefit of repaying it, but it, it is a, a great way to use your RSPs, a great way to help you get into your first property. And is there an interest rate charge on that RRSP loan? It's not, it's not classified as a loan. Okay. Because it's, it's effectively you're taking the money out. So you've got so you've got money in your RSPs. You're taking it out and just taking so, but you're taking it out with, without the withholding tax, without the, without the tax consequences that typically comes when you pull money out of RSPs. Okay, very cool, very cool. And um, what about the uh, the HST tax credit? Uh, you're referring to that one there. That deals with uh, with new construction properties. Oh, okay. So it's strictly new construction. New, new, well, HS, HST doesn't apply to residential properties, but it does apply when you're buying new construction. Okay. So again, if you're buying, so so this, this is where there's a difference between buying a property as a principal residence versus buying it as an investment property. So if you're buying it and at the time you're declaring it as a rental property, the the credit does not apply up front. You can still get it, but this doesn't apply up front. Whereas if you're buying it at, and you're declaring it as your principal residence, then at the time of closing, the HST credit applies immediately. If you're buying it as a rental, what happens is that on closing, you actually pay the uh, you pay the HST, and then this is something your lawyer should be able to assist with, uh, where the, there's a couple forms you just fill out. As I said, every time I've done this, the lawyers essentially have the paperwork. I just sign the paperwork. The, the forms get sent into the government. And usually within about six to eight weeks, I get I get the HST back, so I still get it credited to me, uh, as, as long as as long as the property is being used for its intent, which is as a residence for somebody. So as, and, and as a residence for somebody. You made a, a very good point there that it is uh, you are eligible for it both as an investor and as a uh, using it as your principal mm -hmm. residence. They're simply different forms. It, That's still exactly. Well, right? one is applied at the time of closing, whereas as an investor. You've got to pay it, and then you get it back as a refund. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people within, think within it's usually about six to eight weeks. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty well, quick. Where, yeah. A lot of people. Yeah. Where people get into trouble with this, and where especially uh, I know in Toronto and, and other major markets where there's been a lot of new construction, there's actually government task force that are going over is if the property is not then owned for at least one year, or you declare it as your principal residence, and they actually do homework to see if you actually moved in there talking to neighbors did they actually see a, did they actually book the elevator to move in all these other things that they do and if they, they deem that no you did not or you sold it within a year then they will come back and suddenly you get a bill for that HST oh really yeah so it, it's important to keep that one to keep that one on the level I um, I, I heard a, an interesting strategy as well from a, a gentleman who came out to one of the meetups that we were running and it was to do with new construction that is considered a, or sorry, being listed as a resale, but if no one's actually lived in it, it's still considered a new build. And if the realtor doesn't do his homework and nobody's talking about, uh, you can come in and claim the HST on that uh, on that property, and the original owner is on the hook for it. I uh, it's something I can't comment on. I don't know anything about that, but. Okay. <laughs> oh wow! I, wow, I stumped you, you the stumped expert. Me. Yes. <laughs> well, and, no, and I say just because it's something that I don't deal with. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously I'm aware of it. I'll let, I'll help educate people when they're buying a property. But as far as far as pieces like that, that's more if there's a realtor who's found some clause of 
of how to do things, that's great. But it's just something that, that I don't deal with. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's one of those those little things that uh, people sh- you know should be aware of. That if you're uh, buying a pre-construction uh, uh, condo or, or townhouse or whatever, that if your li- realtor listed as a, a resale. Um, it's still technically a new build. And if it sells as a resale, then the person who buys it can come in and claim that HST credit. And the seller is on the hook for the, you know, dollars $90,000 that, yeah. uh, that the bill entails. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, if somebody were to declare bankruptcy in their financial history or past, how would that affect their chances of, chances of qualifying for uh, another mortgage? It makes it a lot tougher. You got something you want to tell me, Kirk? <laughs> Not you. We're talking specifically about you. So, so let me elaborate, and, and this goes. So, so I'll elaborate on this both from a bankruptcy standpoint as well as just having a period. I mean, and you see this with a lot of people. Uh, they get their first credit card in their early, in their uh, late teens, early twenties. They get into trouble. They turn around. They yeah, I'm not going to use. On that I'm one. not going to use credit ever again. And then suddenly they go to buy a house 10 years later. They don't have any debt, but now they've got a problem because they don't have any credit. So the person who's had just that bad credit experience, but but not reestablished credit. The, the, the important thing with, with both of these, whether it's a bankruptcy, a consumer proposal, or just, hey, you had a period of a couple of years where you got stupid with your stuff, you became smart. It's very important to reestablish credit and just have a credit history. Because if, you, if you've got nothing to show, that's where lenders have an issue. Now, if you've gone through bankruptcy, so, so I'll, I'll just go through these one at a time. So, so the, the person who just had sort of something bad with their credit a number of years back, and now they've been sort of clean with their credit for quite a few years, as long as they've reestablished their credit, they shouldn't have any issues. By reestablished credit, it usually means have at least two trade lines, have at least a minimum of two to $3,000 in, in credit limit, and try to have, I mean, we talk about banks, but try to have at least one of those trade lines through a major bank. Hmm. Okay. What's a uh, what's a good amount of income to go with that? Sorry, a good amount of income. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the the good amount of income really comes down to what you're going to qualify for mortgage wise. Obviously, somebody who's making fifty thousand a year is not going to qualify for someone as much as someone who's making a hundred thousand a year. Yeah. As a quick rule of thumb. Mortgage you're going to qualify is somewhere around four to four and a half times your income. Okay, like yearly income. That exactly. Yeah. So if you're if you're making let's say household income of a hundred thousand dollars, so roughly around four to four hundred and fifty. I mean that that's very rough guidelines. But if you're saying, well, I want to buy a property like this, use that as a quick gauge to say, does it make sense? Hmm. So Kirk, you can get like a seventy seventy five thousand dollar home. Nice. <laughs> By myself. I should pay you more, huh? <laughs> yes, you should pay me more. Actually, and while we're on that topic... Well, I'm, 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 no, sorry, I'm going to go back before we switch because we were talking about bankruptcy, which was the original question. Because because the bankruptcy one is, is very important to just go into. I mean, bankruptcy is something, obviously, you don't want to do, but there are circumstances where it does make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, somebody who is... And I've seen... And I'm just saying this because I've seen... I've heard of people... Who are like 25 years old? They've got 10 or 15 thousand dollars in credit card debt. They say, "This is the end of the world." They declare bankruptcy. It's that's almost the worst thing you can do because now you basically made it so difficult for you to get anything for quite a few years for a, a relatively small amount of money. 
Uh, but when you look at bankruptcy, if you're, if circumstances are such that you need to go through bankruptcy, it's very, very important that post-bankruptcy, once you're discharged, you're going to need at least two years before you can look at getting a mortgage. I'll say with an A lender, there are alternative lenders who will lend to you, but you're looking at a minimum of two years before any A lender is going to look at you. And it's very That's important. it? Uh, well, this, this is post-discharge from bankrupt, and it comes down, oh, okay. it, it comes down to... It's not the day you declare bankruptcy, it's when you're actually discharged from it. And it comes down to, is your credit reestablished and how clean is your credit? If you miss one payment in that period, that two year clock restarts from that date. Ooh. <laughs> wow. So, so that's <laughs> what I'm saying. It's like, you, you, if, if you've gone through that, you've got to show, hey, listen, I've learned my lesson and things are squeaky clean now. There's like, there's, there's no forgiveness. Well, I shouldn't say there's no forgiveness. There's obviously forgiveness. But there is uh, there's not a lot of leeway for additional mistakes for a period of time. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So what's the difference between a bankruptcy versus a consumer proposal then? As a consumer proposal, well, bankruptcy effectively everything's written off. Where a consumer proposal, it's hey, listen, I owe fifteen thousand dollars. I can't pay fifteen thousand dollars. But what we've agreed to is I'll pay back seven thousand of it with structured payments over a period of time. Okay. So, so in, in, in some ways they are looked at, I mean, in, as far as getting a mortgage, they're going to look at it in the same light where post discharge from proposal is two years of clean credit. Uh, so in some ways it's similar, but as far as from a lender standpoint, they're going to look at more favorably someone who went through proposal than bankruptcy because the bankruptcy said, no, I can't do it. Whereas proposal said, hey, listen, here's what I can do. Let's make this work. They're at least willing, they're at least showing that they're willing to, uh, to, to, to work with it to, to get some of it back because they understand that, yes, they did borrow the money. So it reflects a little bit better yeah, on that. Exactly. On, but on... still, they both don't reflect favorably. Exactly the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try not to do this. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, the next question I have for you is, what's the difference between pre-qualifying for a mortgage and getting pre-approved? Pre-qualifying versus pre-approved. Uh, the, the the two the two terms are very similar. I'll just uh, I'll just go through and and the, just break down the terminology just a touch. So the, the pre-approval, you're actually getting a document that is confirming that yes, you do qualify for that. That will outline here's what you're going to qualify for, give you some sort of rate hold and so forth for that period. Uh, Pre-qualification, that's more or less just a verbal someone saying, yeah, I mean, just based on based on the information quickly, here's what you can qualify for. So okay. the pre-approval goes into a little bit more, just a, a little bit more of call it an underwrite to confirm that things are what they are. Uh, typically, if you're getting pre-approved versus pre, pre-qualified, you can you typically do verbally, whereas pre-approval, usually going to go through get the documentation to confirm all the numbers so i'd like to swing things a little bit we're talking about the uh the the consumer side of things a little bit but since you are a broker and you've had uh what 80 90 agents working for you at one time yes i did um what uh what's somebody who's starting out right now as an agent what's something they could do to to start their business with uh, uh a little bit more chutzpah than 
than say the average person because i mean it's not exactly tough to get a mortgage license yeah well that's very true <laughs> but uh, the average person is starting out. You know, the, uh, I, I know several people who started out, they've got a job, they, they just got their mortgage license, they found a brokerage that's willing to let them park their license there. But what could they do to really kickstart their, their actual mortgage business? Because trust is really tough, especially if you're looking at like friends and family. They're, they're usually the last ones to come on board when you're trying something new. Yeah, that's a great comment, the friends and family. The number one thing I, the number one thing that, that I would tell pretty much all the new agents coming on board is for the first year to two years, don't don't expect any of your friends or family to do business with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the main reason it's, I mean, I've seen a few exceptions to that, but the main reason is they don't see you in that light today. Yeah. And so they, they've seen you as whoever you are for whatever period of time, sort of turn around and say, hey, this is a mortgage professional who I'm going to put my trust in. They don't see you in that light. Not they don't trust you, but they don't see you in that light today. And the other part is a lot of people are, call it reluctant to share their personal financial information with somebody they know. That makes sense. Yeah. Now saying that, saying that, I mean, as I said, there are always exceptions. And here's how I've always approached it with my friends and family. Listen, you're you're doing something. If you want to do business with me, great. If you don't, if you don't, great as well. I mean, I, I don't expect you to do business with me. If you need advice, if you want me to overlook what you've got, use me as a sounding board. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got me, you know me, you trust me. Use me as a sounding board, and and I, I'll at least guide you in the right direction. I understand you don't want to do business with me, but but at least at least let me guide you so I I can help you out. And doing that, again, you usually gain a lot of trust in people doing that. Is there a, a, a mentor that you would recommend or, or a book that you read or a course that you took that really accelerated your mortgage career? Uh, I really didn't go the, uh, the, hey, let's read a bunch of stuff. I pretty much, when I started out, it was the mentality became getting up every day saying, what can I do to get a deal on my plate today? So, so straight up necessity. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. And it was really it was really networking. It was going to any event I could find. Um, I, I, uh, I jokingly say that I got kicked out of TTC parking lots for handing out material in TTC parking lots. I am banned from doing it ever again. They, took it they, 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 did, they didn't charge me, but they said that if I did it again, they would. So I took it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went around, marketing. I knocked yeah, on I doors, I obviously attended open houses, uh, by open houses, just, I'm talking about realtor open houses, just going in and talk to the realtors. I'd spend a Saturday afternoon, just go around and hit like 20, 30 open houses over between that like two to five window and most open houses are running. Wow, that must have been before traffic was what it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> you would pick, usually Toronto pick, area. Would stick within a neighborhood. Don't, don't, don't say, oh, I got okay. one at Young and Eglinton, I got the other one out in Mississauga. That makes no sense. <laughs> What's the number one tip you would give to a person, Jonathan, that's looking for a mortgage? Oh, we flip topics now? Yes, we have. <laughs> wow, yeah, we well, were well, just totally I, on agents. Be, be, yeah, before I, know, I get to that, I'm start. just going to give you one other piece about, about someone wants to become a mortgage agent, and that is educate yourself on the industry. Educate yourself about the lenders. Um, there's nothing that pisses lenders off more than you calling up saying hey i want to can you do this deal and you cannot 
and you know nothing about what they offer. And so if you actually know what their products are and you're able to come in and say, hey, listen, I know that typically you do this, this, and this. This one's slightly outside this area. Can you make that deal work? That's when you impress people and they're more willing to work with you and find a way. I remember when I started out, it was I, I educated myself and I had a BDM who, who her standard answer was always back, well, look in our broker kit. I said, I did look in your broker kit. It says this, this, and this. This is my exception here. Can you do it? She's like, okay. And she knew right then, okay, I'm playing ball. And she, she's one of my best adversaries in the industry today. Best adversaries? Well, oh, sorry. Best, uh, probably the wrong word. Yes. The opposite. Of Advocate. <laughs> Thank you for catching me on that one. <laughs> sorry, buddy. I had to. I had He's to. He's just in one of those moods today. You well, it's it's, it's just job. when when you're in the flow sometimes, it's like you, the, the word pops in. It's like, I think it means that. No, no. Wait a second. No, I, I meant the opposite of that. But hey. <laughs> that's why it's good to hang out with friends. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> Emissaries. Oh, that's even better. That's a good one. Exactly. Uh, so, so back to the other question, which is the best advice uh, for someone looking at a mortgage. Again, you got I'll, it. I'll give the same answer I just gave. Educate yourself. Know who, basically, I mean, getting the mortgage, finding out what you can qualify is part of it. But before you actually sign the documents, before you know who the lender you're going to is, understand really what those, understand what the lender is offering you. And the big part, I mean, we spoke about it a little bit, but understand that that penalty should you need to get out of it. Someone says, well, I'm not gonna sell this property. Life circumstances change. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, some, sometimes, sometimes, and people say, well, I got a good marriage. Not, I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing. Life circumstances could change where suddenly you get this like great job opportunity in the States. It's gonna pay you four times what you're making today. You're gonna turn it down. Yeah. So it, it could be something phenomenal, but okay, now I gotta sell my property. Oh wait, now I got this big penalty. So so just yeah. so understand all those things up front. Take the time to educate yourself on who you're getting the mortgage from. And I said a good mortgage broker should be able to explain to you about the lender. And if you are gonna go to the bank, again, make sure the person that you, you are talking about, and I, I'm not gonna bash banks here because there are some great people at the banks who do phenomenal jobs, but make sure the person who you are talking to and dealing with, make sure they can go through and really explain to you all these things about what the penalty is i mean that that's always the big one that keeps coming up but what your uh what your prepayment privileges are just all the things about the mortgage that you probably want to know so if we're going to stay on that line um do you recommend the accelerated mortgage payment you know the the paying every two weeks uh versus paying monthly oh, I, we i've just heard talked about yeah this we were just talking today, about yeah. this morning that uh, the banks actually hold your accelerated payment, so you pay it at the middle point of the month. They actually hold it till the end of the month to apply the payment, so that they can charge the interest for that month. Is that true? That's uh, according to amortization schedules. That part's not true. Ah, okay. Mm. We were misinformed then. That's okay. good. No, I mean, <laughs> because because the amortization schedule is the amortization schedule. So basically, based on when things are done, if you, if you're doing the call it the accelerated biweekly, and uh, and by accelerated biweekly, what it essentially means is your payment is half of your monthly payment, but because it's biweekly, it's you're making 26 as opposed to 24 payments over the course of the year, which is which again, if you convert that over to a monthly payment, uh, would be 12 monthly or 13 monthly payments over the course of the year. Hence the word accelerated. That that's where that's where it pays things down faster. Now, would I recommend it or would I not recommend it? Let me just put it this way. I have never done an accelerated payment. 
but it depends. Th this is where there's no there's no one answer for anybody. Does it make sense to do it? If you can do it and it makes sense, if you're paid bi-weekly and you go through your budget and says, hey, it makes sense to do it as far as your monthly cash flow, then do it. I've always been self-employed, so I like that monthly payment. I like one payment a month and just knowing when it's coming out, uh, it just gives me peace of mind as a self-employed person because I don't, because my, as self-employed, my cash flow fluctuates. As a well, somebody who's paid every two weeks, and if you're paid every two weeks on a Thursday and you say, let's set that payment up, I'm paid on Thursday, let's set that payment up every, every other week for the Friday, so that way you just take that, take that part away, they know what money they got left over. In that situation, it can be a great tool and as you say, if you got a 25-year amortization, it drops it down to about 21 years. So you drop four years off your mortgage right there. Mm -hmm. But is, is it is it the sort of the best thing for everybody? It depends on circumstances. And my, my, my answer my answer is always and no different. Someone says, "What's better, fixed or variable?" The answer is it depends. Yeah, yeah. Of there, there, there's no there's no one answer that's right for everybody. Geez, you know, this is such a broad topic. Um, there's so many questions I, 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 I want to ask you. I know, unfortunately, <laughs> we're kind of running out of time Yeah, here. we are getting low. But just before I we do that, um, you touched on self-employed. That's a, a huge, huge portion of what we do here at Blackthorn oh, yeah. is dealing with self-employed uh, and, and small business owners. Are there any tips for those folks to help them get qualified? Because I know it's very different for them. They don't have the income that, uh, say, a, a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer would have that's steady. Is there anything you, you would advise people to, to help them get qualified? The, the number one thing, file your taxes on time. Hmm. That, that, that is, that's the number one thing. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for throwing that plug back there, uh, there Jonathan. That's I'll, awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that because if you are self-employed, the first thing the lender is going to ask for is show me, show me your last hat to your tax return. If you're behind, a lender is going to say, sorry, we can't lend you. End of story. There, there is not even no ifs, ands, or buts. A lenders are you're, are off the table. You're looking at beer alternative at that point. Government always comes first, right? Uh, well, it's well. That's not even that's not even saying you may not owe taxes, but it's just saying that that they need to see your tax return. If they're not up to date, then there's no way. Now, with self-employed, there are two ways that they can then qualify. You've got what's termed as qualified income, or you've got stated income. Um, and and I'm gonna I'm. For qualified income, it's looking at what's, it's line 150 in your tax return. Essentially what it is, is what's the number you actually paid taxes on? Use that number there. If that qualifies it, qualified income, then pretty much everything's the same as, as, as employed at that point there. there. There's not much difference. Just need to get your tax returns. Obviously confirmation, you've got a business, a couple things like that, and then things are good to go. Now, if that income is not enough, there is options that we can look at what's termed a stated income product. Uh, but stated income needs to be reasonable. And there's a couple things uh, that, that are used for the reasonability check. Uh, one of them being is what are the actual revenues of the business? And, and my, my, uh, one, one of the biggest things when it comes to self-employed people is there's a difference between a cash business and a business that declares what they actually make. <laughs> <laughs> and the self-employed people who really got into a hard time and no one's actually officially said it, but most of the regulation changes that have been coming in, and this is before B20, really I'd say over about the last eight to 10 years, have been around tightening things up for people who don't actually declare and show income. Mm. And so if the person who comes in and they show $40,000 of revenue, and it's written down to $10,000, and they're saying I want to get a mortgage, I mean, my answer is plain and simple, good luck. 
Mm-hmm. The, the person who's got a legitimate business, they're showing $150,000, $180,000 of revenue. They write things down to $40,000, $50,000. We need eighty or $90,000 to qualify it. That, that's something that's reasonable for a stated income. Okay. But, but basically, if the stated income is exceeding the revenues that you're actually declaring, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to be able to back it up with the paper. Exactly the case. <laughs> Well, um, we gotta uh, we gotta sign off here, yeah, Jonathan. This is, holy cow, that's a I know the time flew by. Hour. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for answering all is, of our questions today. Really it, appreciate it. Is there uh, is there anything you'd uh, any parting words you'd like to leave us with that uh, you feel folks should know, whether agents or or uh, consumers? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I ultimately when it comes to my job, I I help people get what they ultimately don't want. I mean, everyone says if I would ask you, do you want a mortgage? I hope you say no, you don't. You'd like to have the property free and clear. However, through that mortgage, I really help people buy what they ultimately do want, which is property ownership. So, uh, so thanks a lot for having me on here. Yeah, uh, thank you for joining uh, us. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. Actually, uh, if uh, folks want to want to find Jonathan live in person, he's going to be joining us for our September meetup. Uh, you can go to meetup.com and search for Financial Success Evening. He'll be joining us sometime in September. We haven't nailed down a date yet, but uh, we will have him live here. And uh, how can folks find you normally, Jonathan? Um, right now, I don't even know. I, I'm, so, I'm sort of hidden right now. I'm going through a bit of transition. Uh, but, but yeah, through, uh, through the other things, I'll be, I'll be showing, showing up and appearing very shortly. All right, fair enough. So uh, if anybody has questions for Jonathan, you can certainly get a hold of us here at Blackthorn. Uh, my email address is uh, geoff at blackthorn-group.com. Uh, more importantly, we have a free gift for anybody who uh, wants it. It's the Pay Less Tax Book. Let me, yeah, since, you got that since the camera's on me, I'll hold it up. Uh, <laughs> Paylesstaxbook.com. Uh, we have a, a great book there about paying less tax. Um, everybody can save more money, uh, make more That's money, the and goal. Then learn to invest that. Uh, as always, thank you so much, Kirk, for joining me. Uh, Your uh, wonderful, wonderful addition to the show. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan, of course, thank you very much. Jonathan Tilger, our mortgage expert. And Sophie, our man with the plan behind the computer. Thank you so much. Uh, we will see you again next Thursday. Mm-hmm.